following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. My name is Brandon, if you don't know me, and I'm on staff here at St. Nick's, and I'm also a student at the university. Um, and allow me to begin with a question, okay? Well, two questions, actually. What is God calling you to? What is God calling you to? And what's keeping you from following him? Why don't you just keep those questions in the back of your mind as, you, as we kind of work through this passage, okay? Does that sound good? Okay, we'll come back to them at the end, but just... Keep them in your mind. What's God calling you to, and what's keeping you from following him? Uh, this week is uh, week number four in, through our Exodus series, and if this is your first night with us, uh, welcome. Um, and perhaps uh, if you missed a week like I did last week, uh, you can always catch up online and, uh, at our podcast. Um, so just to situate our text for, the, uh, for tonight, let, us, let me give you a quick recap of what's gone before. So in the beginning of our story, the descendants of Jacob, better known as the Israelites, uh, they have moved to Egypt, and there they had become prosperous and they had multiplied. Um, But after a a time, a new pharaoh came into power and began to oppress the Israelites, uh, first by making them slaves and then by committing genocide, uh, by commanding that all the newborn Hebrew males be thrown into the Nile. But as Claire preached, uh, we see in this first chapter that Pharaoh does not stand unopposed. Uh, There is a God who interrupts, and he brings this interruption through two women, through two midwives who save the babies instead of killing them. Exodus chapter 2 introduces us to the character of Moses, who who is miraculously saved from death in the Nile by none other than Pharaoh's daughter herself, which is kind of ironic. And Philip's sermon showed us that God is a God who sees. He sees us in our struggles, and and as he heard the groans and cries of the Israelites, so he too hears our prayer of desperation. And last week, Moses had had fled to Midian, right? He had gotten married and settled down. Uh, He even got a job as a shepherd. But God interrupted his life, calling him from the burning bush. As Richard explains, it was there that God revealed afresh to Moses his divine name, I am who I am. The God who is, the God who is present, present in your suffering, present in your doubting, present in your hurting. A God who always is moving towards you, and God moved towards Moses and commissioned him to be the one to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. So tonight... We enter again into the wilderness. With the barefooted Moses, we stand in front of the burning bush, listening to God's word. And after hearing God's name and hearing God's plan and hearing God's promise to save him, Moses responds in a way that I presume we would all echo in the moment. If you look at verse 1, basically him saying, well, what if it doesn't work, though? Right? I mean, that's cool. Now, I mean, I, I get that. I, I believe you, God. But what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe that you appeared to me? And I think it's easy to give Moses a hard time here. I mean, he's standing in front of a burning bush that's not consumed. And the Lord is speaking from the bush and telling him exactly what to do. 
And it's in pretty understandable terms. I mean, just literally go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, right? It's pretty simple, right? So why all these objections? Why all these questions? Well, imagine that you're walking by the river, you know, behind the cathedral, and all of a sudden a bush bursts into flames, and it starts speaking to you, right? You would probably have a few more questions, right? You probably wouldn't just take that at face value. You'd have a few more questions, and I think one of them would be, very naturally, well, what if my friends think I'm crazy, right? I would think you're crazy. You'd think I'm crazy. I mean, it's pretty understandable. So in one sense, I think we are right to fault Moses for all these questions, because, I mean, it is the Lord speaking. But in another sense, his questions are understandable. So God knows our weakness, and he knows the difficulty of faith. And in verse 2, he responds positively to Moses by giving him three signs. Um, And I think with our familiarity with magic tricks and maybe Harry Potter, um, it's easy to skim by this passage without fully appreciating its richness. So allow us to slow down, right? So the Lord, you know, basically very casually says, all right, what's, what's in your hand there? It's like, oh, it's a staff, right? And, and the staff only moments before Moses throwing down was a very normal staff, a very complete, you know, he's had it for a long time, right? Um, and as soon as it hits the floor, it transforms into a snake. Like, that's surprising. And you can almost imagine, the, you know, the horror on Moses' face that it starts slithering toward him, right? And Moses is kind of like Indiana Jones. He, like, really doesn't like snakes, okay? And he's frightened, okay? And, and, and it really, it says he ran away from it, right? This is no illusion. And to top it off, God just tells him to pick up the snake by its tail, right? Notice how God does not explain what will happen to Moses when he picks up the snake, right? He didn't know that it was get, the, the staff would turn into a serpent when he threw it down, right? If he did, he'd probably throw it a bit farther away, okay? No, and, so he do, and God doesn't tell him what's going to happen if he picks it up, but he just does so, right? I think that's pretty interesting. And if Moses thought that was a scary trick, wait till God asks him to put his hand inside his cloak, right? Like, what, is there going to be a snake in there too? You know, like, we, he has no idea, right? And it's actually worse than a snake. He pulls his hand out from his cloak, and it's diseased. And it has literally turned a different color. I mean, maybe some of you, when you think of Moses, you think of Charlton Heston, right? Who, his hand's white, so pulling out, it's not a big deal, right? Moses probably a bit darker skin than Charlton Heston, right? He's going to pull out his hand, and it's going to be a completely different color. It's going to be diseased. It's being very alarming. Uh, it probably smells, right? I mean, the word, it says leprosy, but don't think of it like the, the, the flesh-eating disease that you think of. It's, it's just kind of a catch-all word for various skin diseases. But still, it's gross-looking, and it's, it's flaky. And, it's just, it, and so he's probably very relieved when he puts it back in his cloak, and it comes out all healed. And I guess my question is, when I read this text, is why these signs, right? I mean, surely God could have come up with a much nicer magic tricks, right? I mean, he could have thrown the staff down and become a puppy or something. That would have been much better, I think. But he didn't, right? So, so we have to ask ourselves, why, why, are, why these signs, okay? The, I think a lot of people, when, we, when we, they read this text, they go, oh, well, these... Um, these are just signs to demonstrate God's power. And I think that's partly, that's part of it. But like, you know, signs on the motorway, they're not just there to add to the decoration. They're not just at, there to add to the scenery. They're actually communicating something. So what might these signs be communicating? Well, let's start with the first sign, okay? So in Egypt, 
the serpent or the cobra was a symbol of, uh, of, of a goddess who was the protector of Egypt. Um, the pharaohs would have actually had a symbol of this deity in the form of a cobra on their, on their headdresses. And you can do a quick Google search, and they'll, you'll just see them all over the place. They're just all over Egypt in art, in the hieroglyphs, on thrones, on headdresses. Um, they're all over the place. And so we can see that this serpent uh, represents not only the pharaoh, but actually the gods of Egypt. Through this sign, God is communicating both his power over pharaoh and these gods. But it also doubly communicates uh, their weakness, right? Uh, they may seem like a scary, venomous cobra, but if you just pick them up by its tail, it, they're not really a problem to you. It just turns right back into a staff. And just, you know, a PSA, you shouldn't play with deadly cobras, okay? It's just to clarify, if you were thought that it was the takeaway of the sermon, it just please don't do that. Um, but the symbol of the serpent also takes us back to Genesis 3, uh, where it was a serpent who had tempted and tricked Adam and Eve into disobeying God. And the readers of this text are not only going to see the Pharaoh in view, but the entire existence of evil. God is communicating that he will overcome evil. He will crush the head of the serpent. And as Christians, we can recognize that Jesus' death and resurrection are the ultimate fulfillment of that promise in Genesis. And here in our passage tonight, God is reminding Israel that sin and evil will not have the final word. The second sign communicates something similar. Um, In Exodus, and something that becomes really clear in the book of Leviticus, is that disease, the diseased hand, this leprosy, represents decay. And decay inevitably leads to death. In the second sign, we are reminded that God is stronger than sickness and death. He reminds us that death will not have the final word. And if these don't work, God gives Moses another sign to perform— Um, that as we continue in our series, we will see become uh, part of the uh, ten plagues. Uh, But again, this sign is more than just a demonstration of God's power. Um, The Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt, you know, yes, pun intended, right? Uh, It was the very thing that made Egypt so prosperous. And in Egyptian uh, mythology, the Nile was almost uh, divine in itself. So at the very least, the, the sign of pulling up water and, uh, out of the Nile and pouring it on the, on the dry ground and it becoming blood, right? At, at the very least, this represented, um, this, this would reveal two things. That it, firstly, that the Egyptians, to the Egyptians, it would reveal the true source of their power. Uh, it's not because they have the greatest military or the best economy or that they're blessed by the gods. No, their power is a result of the bloodshed of, the he- of Hebrew babies, Their empire is built on the backs of the oppressed. The sign pulls back the curtain and tears down the facade to show what is really happening. Secondly, the sign to the Israelites would reveal something quite different, that God sees them, that God knows uh, what what they have gone through. He 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 has seen their suffering and he has heard their cries, and now he is answering their prayers. He will bring new life to the dead and new hope to those who have none. So with these signs, God reveals who he is. He is a God who undoes injustice, who breaks the power of oppressive empires, who defeats death by the words of his mouth, who heals sickness, stops decay, and who remembers the suffering of his people. This God appeared to Moses, and this God appeared to us in Jesus Christ. And this same God is moving in love towards his people in order to redeem them. 
So with God on his side, how does Moses respond? I, again, not so great. Uh, I, thought he, I thought he would get there this time, but uh, no. He, once again, he explains to God that he's just actually not that great at speaking. Um, he is not eloquent. He's not a man of words. Um, now, we can take this statement from him in two ways. We can, we can see him as being completely genuine. Uh, maybe he has a legitimate speech impediment, or he is actually just an awful public speaker. Uh, and so rightfully, he's fearful of exactly this kind of high-stakes uh, situation that depends on his perfect enunciation. So this is Moses actually showing humility. Uh, thus, it's powerful what God says next, that he has made the mouth, that he will work through Moses' weakness. God promises to be with the mouth, the mouth of Moses, and he will teach him exactly what to say. And in the language of the New Testament... This is God's promise to send his Holy Spirit to be with us, who will make known to us the ever-present love of God and empower us to serve and follow him. But look how Moses responds to this, right? Please, send somebody else, right? Anybody but me. And it's because of this I don't think Moses is being quite genuine in verse 10. No, I think Moses is afraid. I think he's terrified at failing, He is afraid that people will think he's crazy, that he's a fraud. Maybe he has some kind of ancient imposter syndrome. Um, I mean, have you heard this imposter syndrome? Yeah, you guys know what that is? Uh, It's where you continually doubt your accomplishments and your abilities. Uh, Maybe it's it's your skills, your intelligence, or your knowledge. Uh, But you live in constant anxiety that you will be be discovered to be a fraud. Uh, though everyone may compliment you uh, in your work or life, it's just a matter of time before they find out that you're just a complete mess of a human, right? And I'll be honest, that's, that's me like nine days out of the week, okay? <laughs> Rarely do I wake up just be like, I have got this, okay? I'm just, I'm so confident. Uh, I'm going to kill it in my research today. Or I'm just going to administrate so hard at church. Um, no, no, and, and, and don't even get me started about my spiritual life, Right? And I wonder if when we hear God's call on our lives, do we respond like Moses? Like, please, dear God, just send anyone else, not me. And we beg this from God because maybe we just don't believe that we're worthy enough or that we're qualified enough for God's call. And look how God responds to Moses. It's a bit surprising, right? First, God gets angry, which I think is probably better read as frustrated, why is that? Why does God get frustrated at Moses? Well, I th- well, God has repeatedly assured Moses of his call on his life. He has told him a very simple plan that is actually designed not to work, right? He's not, he, his diplomacy with Pharaoh will not work. God will have to step in, and he tells Moses that, like, you're going to fail, and that's good. That's what I want you to do, right? So God isn't, or Moses doesn't even have to succeed in diplomacy, um, God will have to act, and God has told Moses that he will be with him even in his failure, right? But Moses just keeps doubting himself and, and God in the process. This constant negativity, this constant self-doubting and trying to downplay the areas that God has clearly blessed and gifted you in, all of this can be incredibly frustrating for the person who has to repeatedly remind you of the truth. And if you don't believe me, just ask my wife. I mean, um, And secondly, God accommodates to Moses' fear in a way that I think is really interesting. I don't know about you, but when I read this part, uh, I read it in a sarcastic way. You know, like, oh, okay, fine, Moses. I'll get your brother Aaron. I've heard he is just the, the best speaker in all of Egypt, right? 
No, but look, but Moses still has to speak. God is going to speak to Moses, and Moses will then speak to Aaron, and Aaron will then speak to the people. But God, again, promises to be with Moses' speech to Aaron and Aaron's speech to the people. And as this story progresses in Exodus, we see Moses speaking more and more. And when you finally get to the book of Deuteronomy, it's actually just one long sermon from Moses, right? So we see that even in God's accommodation to Moses' fear, it actually doesn't change God's plan and call on Moses' life. It does add a new element that Aaron will serve as a spokesperson, but in the end, Moses is right where God wants him. The conversation the end of our passage feels a bit clipped in the narrative. We don't hear from Moses. Uh, we, we might, he might have given an embarrassed or reluctant nod before turning to leave, but I, I love that God has to remind him to take the staff with him, right? which he probably wanted to leave behind after the traumatic serpent in- incident. But as we wrap up, I want to return to the question uh, that I asked at the beginning of our time. What is God calling you to, and what's, key, and what's keeping you from following him? I think that one of the most common misunderstandings about calling in the Christian life is that we can think that God's call always has to come through a burning bush or some kind of miraculous experience, and that it has to be about something huge, like ending slavery or being Greta Thunberg and ending climate change. Typically, when people think about calling, they think in the long-term, you know, whole-life sort of way, right? Being faithful to God's call can only come at the end of one's life, after, you know, you've been a missionary overseas for 50 years. But here's the thing. If we think about calling in this way, we'll miss out on all the things that God is calling to us in the moment, calling us to in the moment. If we only frame our calling in relation to our future— like, I'm studying now, but I can't wait to serve God in my career. Or, I'm busy at home with the kids, but once they're a little older, then I can serve God. Or perhaps I can serve God even more when I retire. If we frame, in these, if we frame our calling in these terms, we'll just miss out on tens of thousands of opportunities. Friends, I have great news. God is calling you to serve him right now in this exact place and season that you, that you find yourselves in. God calls us daily to follow Jesus. Every decision we make becomes part of responding to that call. We are called to go, by God to love our neighbor, to serve our city, and to preach the gospel. He may have called you to be a missionary in the future, but in this moment, he calls you to be a missionary to your neighbor. Like literally just walk across the street and tell them about Jesus because they need him too. Right? Have a conversation with your coworker or the barista. Right? Invite your barber or your hairdresser to Alpha. I mean, it's really simple. They're, you're paying the money to cut your hair, and they have to stand there and listen to you. So it's great. It's easy. Um, he may have called you to be a CEO or to start your own business, but in this moment, he's calling you to be a wonderful employee at the job that you already have. You love and serve your boss and your coworkers. And maybe you're like me, and you, and you know that Durham probably isn't going to be your forever home, right? You're, you're a student, or your job here is temporary, or you're on a visa, and so they're just going to kick you out in like a week or so. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> um, forget about that. Uh, no, whatever the case, whatever the case, God has called you to Durham right here, even if it's for one more week, Right? So how can you make the best amount of, how can you make the best out of this time that God has here for you? 
So now that we have been reminded of all the things that we are called to, how do you feel? Do you feel excited? you feel nervous? Does this, does this sound scary to anyone? Maybe some of Moses' objections seem really reasonable right now, right? But what if they don't believe me? What if they think I'm crazy? What if I'm not gifted in sharing my faith? I'm not qualified. I'm not worthy enough to serve God. What happens if I fail like anyone else? Anyone else but me? Friends, we don't only serve a God who was, who was acting in the past, or a God who will be, who will act in the future. We serve a God who is, a God who is calling you right now. He's calling you to follow him, a God who is with us. As Jesus promises his disciples, the Holy Spirit will come and teach us, and he will teach us what to say. He will empower us to love and serve our world. So don't be afraid. You are not an imposter. Your abilities neither qualify nor disqualify you from serving God. If he has called you, then he will be with you. And my sisters and brothers, saying yes to God's call on our lives is the best thing we can do. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.